Of course, the invitation to go to Russia and head the propaganda for Mr. Lenin uh, amused him very much because Griffith fancied himself uh, one of the few uh, aristocrats. He boasted that he was descended from the apt Griffith kings of Wales and that uh, the only real aristocracy we had in America came out of the South where they lived in the Grand Manor and he wholly approved of that. Of course, he, he was for the underdog, as I think most of his films will prove. He didn't subscribe to the theme of the bad, bad rich and the good, good poor. He thought, as he, I believe, afterwards made very clear in Orphans of the Storm, that power corrupted. If you remember in that, it began with the aristocrats taking advantage of the poor people and the poor people coming to power and taking advantage of the aristocrats. And when they got the power, yes. he thought power was the corruption and also that war was the corruption. You know uh, how he uh, went to England uh, to work for the British and French governments. He was over there showing the birth of a nation and intolerance uh, in Drury Lane when the prime minister, Lord George, sent for him and said, Griffith, you've got the greatest means to change men's minds the world has ever seen. We want you to go to work for us, the British and French governments, and make up America's mind to go to war for us. Well, I suppose Griffith must have been flattered that. Anyway, we, he sent for the company that he had then under contract, and my sister and mother and I were among them. We went over. And he spent weekends with Bonner Lord, Lloyd George, Lord Beaverbrook, Winston Churchill. And he used to come back and complain. He'd say, you know, I'd enjoy those weekends, but that Churchill, he's always following me around trying to sell me bad scenarios. He said, I can write better scenarios than he can. And then he said they'd joke about that. They said, we've got to keep him here. He's just gotten us into a lot of trouble in the Dardanelles. And Look what he did in the Boer War. We've got to keep him in London where we can watch him. <laughs> he was there trying to sell uh, Griffith these uh, scenarios. Well, we made three films over there, Hearts of the World, The Great Love, and the, I think, best of all, The Greatest Thing in Life of his. And uh, came back here uh, with these uh, uh, three films, finished them, they were uh, sent out, and Griffith had written all three, you know, with us, with Mother and the three or four others in a room, just walking through plots, and they were uh, Griffith's own story. Huh? Have you read this? Ah. Uh, nice. Uh, no, I've just gone through it. I haven't read it. The mark of uh, D.W. Griffith, I believe, is to be found in his film Intolerance. When you look at that and consider that no one wrote a script, no one designed a set, no one designed a costume, that everything in this film was in the mind of one man, I believe you begin to see uh, the size of that man. Uh, as it, I told you, it came out of the fact that uh, people criticized him so deeply for uh, the birth of a nation and his treatment of uh, a race that he loved. 
when I went to Jerusalem, I felt that Mr. Griffith had built Jerusalem because his sets were so authentic in that. <laughs> and he had a carpenter called Huck Workman who used to stand around a little short fat man with a big hunk of tobacco in his cheek and he'd tell Huck what he wanted and Huck would kind of spit and say, all right, and then he'd go build it. <laughs> and uh, all the research that must have gone into the Babylonian period. And uh, after Intolerance was released, he had a letter, I believe, from a, an expert on Babylonian history called Sars. That he, he, he used to carry this letter around, show it to everyone, because he, it was a lengthy letter about the authenticity of everything in the Babylonian period. And this was one man with no help from anyone except these few actors. He'd listen sometimes to me or uh, some woman because he'd say, well, you haven't got any sense, but 75% of my audience will be women, so I've got to listen to you. So you could, because of that, get a few of your ideas into these films and very often did. <laughs> and uh, it was a good thing too, because I think that's uh, what uh, films need today, uh, a little more uh, of the feminine. Uh, to get back their uh, big audience they've lost. But the mark of Griffith, is, beyond any film he ever made, I think, is intolerance. Of course, by that time, he had evolved his technique of telling a story. And as you know, he got this idea from the rivers uh, flowing from different parts of the world and gradually merging into the sea. And he wanted these four stories to come down the hillsides like a river and then in the end merge and go on and that was uh, in the cutting of course because when he made them he made each one separately sure. and then uh, he ought have had the courage of the conviction he started out with that this was to be a four-hour film but he listened to that race of people we call exabiters I know that's not the right word for them, but since I never meet their like in any other uh, part of the world or life, we've christened them exabiters. And they said, no, Mr. Griffith, the public will not sit four hours to see any film. And unluckily, he listened and he cut it so closely that it, in many points, it becomes confusing to an audience. They, they can't understand. It's cut too closely and, and things happen too swiftly. It's like going into Ringling Brothers and trying to watch four rings of a circus at the same time. It's not possible. So if he hadn't listened to them, if it had gone four hours instead of three, he would have had a greater success than he had with Intolerance. Of course, even so, I think it's one of the great and lasting films that have ever ever been made, he, in that, used what we now call crane. He uh, used a balloon, but he couldn't do uh, what he wanted to. If you remember, there is one scene that is taken from the distance. It's high. It looks down on the feast of Belshazzar. And I think he had, uh, oh, several thousand people. He had uh, dancing girls and, 
and you could see these thousands of people and they all seemed people they didn't look like extras dressed up for a masquerade they seemed to belong in this period and as it went on you gradually came closer and closer and closer you saw the people you saw the king you saw his princess beloved and finally you went down to a table and you saw two little doves hitched to a chariot carrying a white rose from the king to his princess and i think that's one of the most imaginative things and the way he got it was to put the camera on a platform and then to build two little tracks and this platform was on the tracks and as they pushed the platform forward someone else with two ropes let down the platform as an elevator is let down so that way it was a crane shot that gradually came down and closer and into the two little doves Wonderful. now they do it all the time and it's you know they have these machines to do it but when you consider that it never been thought of or done before it was very effective and and one of the many new and beautiful things this man brought to celluloid and now miss Gishy, you must tell us where lillian gish is in intolerance oh well you know intolerance took two years to uh, make and i was busy working with all the directors and other people that were there on the lot we were making pictures every day uh, but they came to a point they needed a figure rocking a cradle in the distance and no one was uh, available that day and uh, we said well go get the costume on and uh, come and do this for me your face won't be shown so it's all right and that's how i happened to uh, be identified with Walt Whitman's great words out of the cradle cradle endlessly rocking out of the cradle endlessly rocking about how much footage do they take of this scene Miss Gish it, it keeps recurring throughout the film of course oh I think he probably shot uh, 50 60 feet oh, and repeated some of it yes so, yes, yes. Right. they're very quick uh, short uh, yes, it's flashes I wanted to ask you something about the triangle period. The triangle films, of course, are being made at the same time as Intolerance. Yes, I was working in those. Yes. It's known that Mr. Griffith disliked supervising the work of other directors. No, he did not. Oh, I beg your pardon. No, he didn't. He didn't dislike it. He, it, it, it was. It made him work so hard. He had. He was doing what I just told you with a film called Intolerance. Yes. Added to that, every night he had to go and see a rehearsal. Uh, for a picture with Douglas Fairbanks, or one with me. Whom else was in that company? So long ago, I can't remember. Well, you were starring in Triangle Films, and Dorothy yes. Gish had yes. films of her own, and May Marsh, and Bobby mm. Heron. Constance, Constance uh, Talmadge, Talmadge, Norma Talmadge. Norma Talmadge. Yes. He, he not only had to uh, review their, these stories and give ideas on them, whether they were good or bad, but he had a, a man like Fairbanks from the theater that he wanted to help transfer into films and a uh, film technique yes and he wanted to help him and and he was a great success under his uh, guidance so he would see these rehearsals if it should be raining he'd be in there watching the rehearsals and giving suggestions he had that entire company together with intolerance which is quite uh, an order for one man yes it certainly was uh, and he trained so many directors. He trained Senate. You know, Senate was 
uh, one of uh, Griffith's men in the beginning, long before I got there. And as you know, Max Sennett then later on trained uh, Charles Chaplin. And uh, I think there's scarcely anyone, I believe it would be safe to say there's no one in the films today that has not been influenced by the father of the films, D.W. Griffith. Yes, as I remarked to you before, that uh, when uh, Max Sennett made his first feature-length comedy, they remarked that he was using uh, fade-outs and close-ups and all the Griffith techniques. Why, certainly Griffith, uh, I think, involved the uh, chasing, uh, the policeman, all, uh, he <laughs> loved slapstick comedy. He put it in his own pictures when he could. If you remember the egg and the way down east, the, the hen lays and <laughs> breaks on the top of the head. Oh, yes. It hurt our dignity. But Griffith just loved that. He <laughs> loved slapstick comedy, and I'm sure he and Sennett had a great time working together. When Mr. Griffith was so busy with intolerance, Miss Gish, did he have much time to uh, be on the set for the other Triangle productions? He didn't go on the set. He watched their rehearsals. You see, oh, see. that is a thing that's gone out of films. No one rehearses anymore. So they... they consequently lose sight of the tempo, the timing of their films, I think, because they don't rehearse. These pictures had to be rehearsed in time before they went before the camera. Then you knew, it was written down, how many feet you had for your various scenes. Yes. Just as in a building, you, you know, you had to be a craftsman. Now they just take a novel and take the scenes and put it on the screen, and they don't gather the tempo or gather momentum as they come toward the end. They play the scene in the last part of the film with the same tempo they play in the first part. But we weren't trained that that was the proper thing to do. You had to gather momentum. And just as, well, you're at the bottom of your building isn't the same as the top of your building. No. Or you're, you know, it, it, it's a, a, a kind of technique that... Uh, is so expensive because they can't have these actors to rehearse. But I think if they would rehearse their actors and they would know exactly what they were doing, they would save themselves in the shooting time and it wouldn't eventually be more expensive than the way they, the haphazard way they go at it now. An actor might be asked now to play the last scene first. He's never seen the man or woman he's going to play that scene with perhaps before. But then you had rehearsed all your story together, you knew exactly what had preceded and what was coming after. Yes. Do you think that if the entire version of the original, complete version of Intolerance had been released, that that would have been the deciding factor in its success? I think it would have pleased an audience much more, and they would have been held by it. Yes. Much When you're confused, you, you get cross, you, you say, what happened, What what's that? and you're disturbed, whereas if it's clar uh, clarified for you, you just sit there and enjoy it. Yes, they get angry even now, yes. you know. <laughs> yes, but you, you know, many films since have been four hours long. Yes. I must say some seem five years long, but uh, <laughs> this had so much happening. Yes. You know, you Griffith wasn't... Uh, satisfied just to do a love story. You've got a love story, surely. Sometimes you've got two or three, but you've got some history. You've got some melodrama. You've got a spiritual lesson. And another thing he uh, took was the responsibility of the power of this medium. He knew its effect on the world. I remember his coming home in great astonishment to the studio one day and saying, 
Well, I saw a film last night, and Marguerite Clark took her stockings off right in front of the camera. What, what are we coming to? <laughs> you know? That's very interesting. But I don't say that the world is in the state it's in today because of the pictures. After all, we have had three, wor three wars. But I think the pictures have to take some of the responsibility for the sense of values that have been given to America and the world. After all, the films uh, publicized and made popular the short hair for women all over the world. Of course, Miss Irene Castle started it in America, but the films carried it to the world. Now, if they can bob the hair of the women of the world, why can't they change the morals of the women of the world and the men and the children? So that I think that sense of responsibility of this great medium has to be taken again by the man, the men that are in control. I think you're very right. Women. You spoke of coming back from England with three pictures, Miss Gish, The Hearts of the World, The Great Love, and The Greatest Thing in Life. Yes, all on war, and he made the Germans the villain. Well, now, a very funny thing, those films were run at the Museum of Modern Art in New York in the early 30s in the late 20s and I had occasion to go in and see them and the audience you know every time a German and they were called Huns in those days every time one came near me he kicked me knocked me down he took out a whip and beat me well it was very funny to them they just howled all right in about five or six years toward the end of the 30s I went in to see them again they were banging the war drums once more, and the audience took these things seriously. Isn't that, Isn't that an odd... Nice. Uh, so Griffith felt ashamed that he should make villains of any one race because he didn't believe that we were that different. He thought we were all capable of the best and the worst in the world. So he went over there and made a film in, ninth, in the middle 20s called Isn't Life Wonderful? Wasn't it? Isn't life wonderful? And in that, he made the war the villain. The war brutalizes a people, any people. If you live through that, you're bound to be affected by it. And I think it was to ease his own conscience because he wouldn't want to spread hatred in the world against any one people because it he didn't believe it and he could only say on celluloid what he believed sincerely there was an interesting story about um, Erich von Stroheim in Hearts of the World didn't he rehearse for one of these parts yes he Mr. rehearsed uh, Mr. Sigmund's part and of course got his hopes up like all of us that he'd get to play it and when he didn't he burst into tears well that kind of uh, interested we we were we might burst into tears in the dressing room although i don't think we would have allowed anyone to see us if we didn't get a part but he burst into tears in public <laughs> mr griffith went over and put his arm and said now don't feel badly you it's just because we have to have a bigger man we have to have a great big man yeah, yeah now i'll i'll have a part in another picture that's just as good you'll have a part in this one too but it was hard to console him because he he wanted that part he'd been rehearsing. You spoke of um, some of the, the prominent women of England who had appeared in um, 
the great love. Wasn't Lady Diana Manners in that? Lady Diana Manners, Lady Mary Paget, uh, uh, Queen Mary, and the King, they all worked for Griffith because he was uh, working for the British and French governments. Oh. And of course in France we were sent right up front where they would not send uh, nurses. Nurses were valuable in during the war, but uh, an actress, particularly film actresses, they were dime a dozen. All that they cared for was that they'd get up there where the, the excitement was uh, going on, and we did. We, we all know your feeling about the greatest thing in life, Miss Gish. Won't you tell us something about the story of this film? Well, of all the three films Griffith made over there, I believe the greatest thing in life was the best of his. As I say, he wrote all three films, and this was a, of an American snob. He uh, didn't like his fellow human beings, and he found himself drafted during the war and sent to France. And he falls in love with the French girl, but he's ashamed of himself for his interest in her. He calls her a little shrimp, tells him, tells her she'll probably marry another shrimp and have a lot of little shrimps. But nevertheless, his heart's involved, and he's sent up front and finds himself in a shell hole with a colored man who is dying, and in his delirium, he calls for his mammy. And as he dies, he the white man, the white snob, leans over and kisses the colored man full on the lips. And then you see the colored man, mammy, colored man in his delirium thinks it's his mammy. And you see him die with a smile on his face. Well, now that's a very daring scene, even today, you know. It certainly to, is. And uh, they took it with such seriousness. It's a very dramatic and beautiful scene, and I think you can't, again, evaluate the work of this man without that film. I hope it's found and recorded. There's a portion of a, a, a review about the greatest thing of life, Miss Gish, that reads like this, and I wish you'd comment on this passage. Little Lillian Gish is shown to beautiful advantage in three or four close-ups of a new type which idealize her expression. Oh, that was the beginning of what we call the beauty close-up. Until that time, uh, Mr. Bitzer uh, would uh, photograph your face, and if you had something on it that even you couldn't see, it would be a mountain up there on the screen. <laughs> and uh, consequently, they had to have these young faces, you know, an old hag of 18, was playing character roles. She could no longer play heroines. So I went to a, what was called a Hollywood art company, I think, and had some still pictures made. And I brought them back to the studio and showed them to Mr. Griffith and said, why ca if I can look like this for a still picture, why can't Billy make me look like that on the screen? And Griffith said, well, if you're so smart, go get that man and see what I can do for you. So I went back to this photographer. His name was Sarto, S-A-R-T-O-V. He was Danish. And I asked him if he would be willing to come to the studio and work in the, with a moving picture camera. And he said, well, he could not, except on Sundays. And Billy said he would give his Sunday, and I did. So the three of us worked two Sundays and got two heads. In those days, you see, I was allowed as an actress to take a, f a scene if I thought it was good for the film. If Griffith wasn't there and I had a cameraman, I could enact a scene and 
send it through and surprise Griffith with it. And very often, most of the time, these films, these uh, scenes would come into the film and Griffith would be delighted because I, I knew the story and I knew the possibilities and I thought it was a good idea and he, he would be happy. So I added these uh, two scenes and put them in this film. And in those days, these pictures opened at Clunes Auditorium, that enormous place now known as uh, uh, the Philharmonic, I believe, in uh, Los Angeles. It holds several thousand people. And when this picture first came on the screen, the audience went, <gasps> and there was a great silence, and then they all burst into applause because they had never seen a beauty close-up on the screen, and we had two in that film, and then after that, of course, they became quite popular. Thank you, sir. Could we hear a little more about Mr. Sarto and Miss Gish? Well, after The Greatest Thing in Life, I think he stayed on with us. I believe he was there through Broken Blossoms and uh, Orphans of the Storm. Then I left Mr. Griffith and went to Italy to make the white sister for Henry King. And the actinic rays of the sun in Italy are quite different from those in California. And the photography over there was, uh, we were getting some new effects and we decided to try a new kind of film that was uh, being issued at that time called panchromatic. And we found that we could use it out of doors with great effect, but we were having difficulty indoors with it. So we didn't try with the white sister to use uh, panchromatic indoors. We waited until the next year when we did a film called Romola from uh, George Eliot's novel. And in that, we made the first panchromatic film that was ever made by an American company with Henry King and Roy Overbaugh as cameraman. Oh, yes. And we had a Russian, Schultz, who handled the uh, negative and, and the printing of it. And after that, I went back to California under MGM contract and they didn't use panchromatic, and I told them uh, what success I'd been having with it and asked if I couldn't use it in their studios, and they said they had no way of handling it in their laboratory because they didn't know about that. It was a highly sensitized film. And I said, well, my Russian was there, and couldn't they take it out of the studio? Well, that was rather irregular, but they allowed me to do it. And Sarto came back with me at that time. Oh, yes. And we made La Boheme, with panchromatic, and it was taken out of the studio. And when it came in, it was so beautiful that uh, Mr. Thalberg and Mr. Mayer uh, tore their, the inside of their laboratory out and changed it entirely and put in panchromatic all through. And that was the beginning of the use of this highly sensitized film in California. And Sarto was, uh, stayed with me through Boehm and the Scarlet Letter and then I had to go to London. Suddenly, my mother was stricken. And when I came back, he'd gone to Mr. Hurst. Oh, yes. For a great deal more money, for which ah. made us all happy. The White Sister started a new kind of trend, didn't it, Miss Gish? Can you tell us about that? Uh, it was the first religious film that was done, uh, as far as I know, in America. And I. Uh, someone brought me this novel by Marion Crawford, and I was deeply interested in it for a strange reason, for a scene that was not in the novel. I had read, oh, a few years before, 
and heard of the ceremony of a nun taking the veil. And it's the most beautiful and sensuous poetry and the whole ritual of being married to the church, you know, having this young, frail figure come to the altar after the subtitle, The Bride, and then a subtitle, The Bridegroom, and you flash to the Christ on the cross. It was quite dramatic, and it had never been done in the theater, in the films, and it was not in the novel, but I saw an opportunity to use it, and I wanted it for that reason. But no one would give me any money. They said, you can't sell religion during the week. They get it free on Sundays. <laughs> and I had to go to the man who's now governor of New York State, April Harriman whom I did not know, whom I didn't meet for years after, but he apparently thought it was a, a good business risk because he put up the money for the white system. We went to Whitley and Henry King made it. And it was Roland, uh, Ronald Coleman's first film. And this picture made millions of dollars. And after that, Mr. DeMille thought that's a good business and he made the King of Kings and he's done quite well since uh, on religion, a thing that they wouldn't uh, give me 10 cents for it. They wouldn't even give me a release. I made a film which very few people had the, um, perhaps the, um, I was about to say courage, maybe it's foolishness, to do is to go out and make a film before you have a release for it. And we came back, we cut it, we put it into the uh, legitimate theater here in New York on Broadway, and it was running successfully, and still no one would give me a release. And I was going to go out and tour it uh, in a tent. You know, Sarah Bernhardt had once gone touring through America when she had a fight with some one of the theater chains. She toured in a tent, so I was going to take my picture to America within a tent. When one man called Nick Skank, who was MGM, said, I'll buy it on my own. He seemed to believe in it, and then they thought, well, Nick believes in it, maybe we'd better take it. So MGM, rather reluctantly, gave me a release. And then they found out what money there was in religion.